Well, we appreciate you coming out to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with us this morning. And we'll continue our worship by opening up to Hebrews. And it's kind of part two of a message that we began last time. And I'd like to read, it's going to be a little bit of a lengthy passage. Most of it you'll find printed inside your bulletin. Uh, we'll be focusing on chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 this morning. But I actually want to begin the reading with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So if you don't have a Bible, just kind of look at your bulletin, hang in there. And once we get to chapter 5, verse 1, you can follow along with us. I'm going to begin reading at chapter 4 and verse 14, and then going right into chapter 5. Again, if there are children and kind of watching along and you wanted to look for a special word to circle, uh, then I'd encourage you to look for that word priest and circle it every time that you see it. I'll begin reading in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then beginning with chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. This morning, we continue our study in Hebrews, and it has everything to do with priesthood. So we have to be thinking this morning of priests. Who needs a priest? What does it mean to be a priest? I was raised in a tradition where I was taught I needed a priest. And that made perfectly good sense to me. Because even as a child, I knew I was a sinner. And even as a child, I believed in God. And so when somebody explains to me, hey, Greg, you're a sinner, God's holy, like something, you know, has to give, someone needs to help you, that made perfectly good sense, right? 
I mean, I played sports a lot. I played football. We had a coach. We just couldn't play football. We needed a coach to help us because none of us were good enough just to play ball. So if we could apply that to the spiritual, it just made sense to me that we would have a priest. So when I was approximately seven years old, second grade, I made my first confession. All Catholic kids did. And confessional booths would be something like this. Ours was kind of similar. In the middle, that would be the main door. There's a priest in there. And then people doing their confessions would be on both sides just to make it a little more efficient. And first time ever, second grade, and then after a number of times, you would go in that side door, and there would be a small square that would open up with a cloth so you could hear the priest inside, but allegedly he can't really see who you are, that kind of thing. And you would always begin the same way. I've said this, you know, I don't want to say a hundred times. I don't know if I went to confession a hundred times. But I would begin with, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was, or the first time you do it, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. And then you would say, I am sorry for these and all my sins. And you would just list your sins. And then he would assign you penance. Penance could be maybe like, say, you know, this is for memory, five Our Fathers, five Hail Marys, and have a blessed day or whatever. And then you would leave and you would generally, as I understand it, what we would do is you would go kneel down and say your five Our, our Fathers, say your five Hail Marys. Penance, you know what penance is? It's like doing something. It's This is Lent, right? Many people give up stuff for Lent. That's penance, right? That's how you earn God's favor if you don't understand the real gospel. That's how I was raised. And so I just thought this makes sense. And if that didn't seem clear, I came across this picture. I've never really have done confession this way, but just to give you an idea of the heart of it, it could even be a very simple screen. The main thing is you're on one side and the priest is on the other. That priest is a special person, guys. That priest is somebody who gets you to God. Because see, here I am, I'm a sinner. God is holy. Something has to happen. Someone has to help me with my sin problem. The priest helps me with that. As soon as you make your first confession, second grade typically, after you do that, you then have your first communion. You say, what is communion? Well, that would be the high point of the Mass. Every Mass Jesus is crucified again in a non-bloody sacrifice on the altar. You probably can't see it, but there's two cruets, we call them, and there's water in one and wine in the other. And the priest would take his chalice, pour some water and wine together, because that's historically just how they did it. And then he would have pieces of bread in another cup. And at the high point of the Mass, allegedly Jesus is sacrificed, and allegedly that bread is no longer regular bread. And that drink is no longer just water and wine mixed. But that would become supernaturally changed. And that was what I was taught. It was no longer bread was the body of Christ. It was no longer drink. It was the blood of Christ. And once you get to roughly second grade, 
it would be time for you to make your first communion. So you kind of watch mom and dad and your big brothers and sisters do that. But for the first time, in a very special way, you would go forward and they would take that little circle. We called it a host. And the priest, you would walk up to him and he would simply hold it in front of you and say, body of Christ. And you would say one word. Amen. Yeah, that's right. I agree with that. That is the body of Christ. You say amen. That's your faith. I believe Jesus was just crucified again. That's my faith. I believe that that piece of bread is now the body of Christ. That's my faith. Amen. And I'm now going to take that into me because I need the special help inside that piece of bread now that Christ has just been crucified again. Amen. I need help. It makes sense in a certain way because I think most of us would say, if I'm going to get to Hilton Head Island, I can't get there just driving. I need a bridge. I mean, my truck can't cross water. That's too much. If I want to get to a sinless God and I'm a sinner, I need a priest to help me get there. So I was taught, Greg, this is your priest. And it made sense. All over the world, people believe in priests. Because all over the world, people have a sense that we are sinners and God is not. That was also true in Judaism, guys, back in the day. Just think about it. If you were raised before the time of Christ in a Jewish background, much of your religious life revolved around priests. And they were kind of the glue that kept the Jewish community together. And they would offer sacrifices. And they would teach you as a family how you can come to God even though you're a sinner. You say, why do these animals have to keep getting slaughtered? Because you're a sinner. And sin is really a serious thing. And for your sin to be forgiven, it's going to take something radical. It's going to take somebody losing his life. It's going to take the shedding of blood. And here you are, Jewish, and you've just practiced that your whole life. And all of a sudden, as a Jew, you put your faith in Jesus. And now you believe, wait a second, you believe what's true. All of those sacrifices, none of them could get me to God. See, they were all just a picture of one day Messiah was coming, Jesus, and he was going to die on the cross. Now, there's some people might see it slightly differently. But I am going to argue no one ever went to heaven because they said that animal's blood paid the price of my sin. No one ever went to heaven. Because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. We're going to get there in time. It was pointing us forward to Jesus. Even as today in our Lord's table, we look back to Jesus. Now think about this. You've been raised Jewish. Your whole religious world is focused around priests. And now you put your faith in Jesus. And people are telling you, you don't need a Jewish priest. 
You don't have to go to that sacrifice anymore. Like, you don't have to go to the temple. You don't have to go to the synagogue. You don't have to do that. And that could be hard to handle. Because your whole life is revolved around priests. And, and, and everybody has been teaching you, you need a priest to get you to God. And now you put your faith in Jesus. And you're being told, Jesus is your priest. And all your Jewish friends are saying, no way. No way. I mean, look at our history. Look at our tradition. Look at our liturgy. Look at our temple. Come on. What do you have? And you say, I have Jesus. And they would say, how can Jesus be a priest? How could Jesus be a priest? What makes you think that Jesus is a priest? And no doubt there's professing Christians who are beginning to struggle. And they're beginning to think, wow, maybe I should go back. Maybe all of the ornate ritual and tradition is better than I thought. Maybe Jesus really isn't my high priest. Welcome to Hebrews. And that's what's being focused on in Hebrews chapter 5 and for the chapters to come. The writer of Hebrews wants to make it crystal clear. Don't listen to those voices that are trying to pull you away, that are trying to say, come back. Jesus Christ is not only a priest, and he's not only a high priest, he is a great high priest. Don't go back. There is no priest better than Jesus. And if you have Jesus as your high priest, there is no other priest you need. Back in the day, we'll say Jewish priest. Today, we'll say Roman Catholic priest or any other priest you want to name. You don't need a Jewish priest. You don't need a Roman Catholic priest. You don't need a Protestant pastor like me to be your priest. I can't even be my own priest. But we have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to look at this morning in Hebrews chapter 5, if you're not already open there. And we'll try to make sense of a passage that I hope, once we're through, will not only be more clear for you, but will just help you leave rejoicing that you have a great high priest and his name is Jesus. Let's go ahead in Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to read just the first four verses. This is kind of like a commentary on Jewish priesthood. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the Scottish since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. If we were Jewish, that would make like completely good sense. Most of us not being Jewish, we've got to slow down just a little bit. But I still think it'll be clear. Let's work through it. What is true of the Jewish high priest? Verses 1 through 4 are going to point out at least three main things. Ready? First of all, he sacrifices for sins. Okay, look at verse 1. So every high priest, notice first of all, he's taken from among men. 
you always take your priest from the group of people that you're dealing with. Uh, I, this might be interesting. Priests are different than prophets. Prophets come from God to teach you about God. Priests go the other way. They take people to God. So priests come from the people. If you want a priest from the people of South Carolina, we need to get somebody who lives in South Carolina to be our priest. That's what's going on in verse 1. He's taken from among men and is appointed on behalf of men. So if you're going to be the Jewish priest, you're going to be from the Jewish people. And you're going to be someone who's appointed on behalf of the Jewish people in things pertaining to God. So we're talking somehow about spiritual things, us and God. And we don't have to guess what kind of things because the rest of the verse clarifies. End of verse 1. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So here we are, right? We're sinners. I'm back to what I've been talking about today. I'm a sinner. God's holy. I need to get to him. Can't do it. How am I going to do it when I'm a sinner? I need help. If it's football, I need a coach. If it's Hilton Head, I need a bridge. If it's God, I need a priest. The Jewish people had priests. And what would those priests do? They would sacrifice for sins. That's very clear here in verse 1. But they did more than offer sacrifices for sins. Number 2. The Jewish priests could sympathize with their fellow sinners. Notice verse 2. He, the Jewish priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Now, gently is really, deal gently. It's a word, one, one commentator puts it this way. Not too easy, not too harsh. It's like parenting, right, moms and dads? You don't want to let your kid get away with doing whatever he wants, but you also don't want to be like, you know, Mr. Police Officer. No, I know offense to you that are in law enforcement. You don't want to be over the top, overly punitive. You want to hit that middle ground. That's the idea. The priest can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, and that's one group of people. They're ignorant and they're misguided. You say, in what way? The rest of verse 2. Since he himself also was beset with weakness. We're talking about weaknesses. What kind of weaknesses? Spiritual weaknesses. Sin weakness. So the priest is the kind of guy who can maybe help you. He won't be too harsh on you. Because he also is like you. He has End of verse 2. The same weaknesses that you have. He's a sinner. So notice verse 3. Because of it, because he has the same weaknesses everyone else has, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. In our Bible reading plan, some of us are just coming out of Leviticus not long ago. And, you know, I have to admit, right, it's maybe not the most exciting reading, at least. You say, where would you rather read, right? Gospel of, according to Matthew or Leviticus? Obviously, Matthew, right? Gospel of Mark or Leviticus? Obviously, Mark. Or Luke or John or Hebrews. But you know what's good about being back in Leviticus? It reminds us that the priest 
always had to offer a sacrifice for himself. He couldn't just come in and do his thing. He had to first of all offer a sacrifice because he's just as much of a sinner as every other Israelite whom he was hoping to somehow bring closer to God. That's just what Jewish priests did. Because of that, he sympathizes with them as a fellow sinner. We got one more thing going on. It's in verse 4. The Jewish high priest, he not only sacrificed for sins and sympathized with the sinners, thirdly, he was appointed by God. He was God-appointed. Notice what verse 4 says. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. You don't volunteer to be a priest. It's not like you run and the people vote on you, okay? Like political office. If you're a Jewish priest, you have to be part of a certain tribe, somehow related to the line of Aaron, we call it the Aaronic priesthood. And God appoints then an individual to be a priest. That's what the text is saying. That's a quick review. Verses 1, 2, 3, 4 tell us all about what it means to be a Jewish high priest. Now, go back in your mind. Here you are, you're Jewish. And now you're following Jesus. And now you're being told, hey, I don't have to be involved with Jewish priests anymore. In fact, it's more than that. It's not that you don't have to, it's that you would be wrong to. Once Jesus Christ makes a sacrifice and ascends into heaven as our great high priest, worship in Judaism is no longer an option. It's actually contrary to the scriptures. Because every sacrifice pointed to a coming Messiah, every work of a priest pointed to a coming high priest, the Lord Jesus. You don't do that anymore in your family. Your friends are going to be saying, what did you do? Why would you believe this? I mean, if what you're doing is better, show me your priest. And Hebrews is written to help you understand, yes, you do have a priest. You have a great high priest. And that's chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, that's the ascension. Jesus, the Son of God. So if someone's telling you, hey, you should come back to Judaism, we have at least priests, we would say, no, I have a better priest. A great high priest, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Hebrews. That's a big deal. And the author is going to spend a lot of time on this topic. And we're going to be coming back to it again and again and again. You say, Greg, why would it be so tempting to go back? You know, it's, 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 hard, it's hard to explain, I guess. Haven't you ever gotten so used to something, it was hard to let it go? I mean, what illustration do, do I use? Did you ever get a... I don't know, did you ever get a new oven or stove and you kind of like, you had your old one and you were so used to it and the new one just didn't seem right? 
You know, you say, Greg, can you relate to that? No. Well, let, let me, let me, because I don't, you know, yeah, I don't use them. Uh, I, I have felt that with the microwave. Uh, I do use that. Let, let me use trucks. Guys, I drove the same truck for 15 years, okay? And for 15 years, I mean, I just drove my truck. I like my truck. And, you know, I wasn't really thinking this is a bad truck. I was thinking it was a good truck. And I prayed about it, won't bore you with details, but I came to a conclusion, it's probably best for me to buy a new truck. After 15 years of driving my other truck, I got a new truck. And I sold my previous truck. And Nance would say, how do you like it? And I'd say, I miss my truck. I mean, I drove the same. I think I could drive my old truck with my eyes closed. You know what I mean? Nancy says, Greg, this drives so rough. I like your new one. It's so smooth. I say, baby, it's a girl's truck. Okay? <laughs> I mean, you can't even feel the bumps. You know? <laughs> my old truck, I could feel every bump. I, I knew every sound. It, I, it fit me well. But now, wait a second. My new truck is bigger. My new truck gets better gas mileage. My new truck is smoother. My new truck is more powerful. My new truck accelerates better. My new truck brakes more efficiently. My new truck has all kinds of safety things. Just this week, I was going down the street. I put on my blinker and I was going to shift lane and my mirror's going bop, 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 like don't do it. And I was like, boy, praise the Lord. I think I would have hit somebody in my old truck. Because remember, my old truck didn't have that. I, I think where the computer was supposed to go, instead they put in an A track. And, and I, so I, that, that was my old truck, okay? You say, Greg, what's your point? My truck is in every way, hands down, better than my old truck. But sometimes change is just hard. And the Jewish believers in Jesus, they're being taught something new, something different. And the temptation is coming to them. Why don't you go back? We'd love to welcome you back. And this text is saying, no, no, never go back. Because yes, I understand what Jewish high priests did, but I want you to know something. Those people who tell you that Jesus Christ is not a high priest were wrong. And I'm going to prove that to you. Welcome to the second part of this text beginning here in verse 5, Hebrews chapter 5. What's going on in Hebrews 5? We're going to hit those three same things that we saw about a Jewish high priest, that he sacrifices for sins, he sympathizes with sinners, and he's God appointed. The order is reversed. The points are the same. Let's hit them one at a time, beginning in verse 5 and 6. First of all, what's true of Jesus? He is a high priest, and he's appointed by God. Let me read verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. It's not something that he said, yes, I want it. That's not why he was a high priest. But notice what the text says. But he who said to him, and here's the quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, Today I have begotten you. So the first thing the writer makes clear 
is there was a day, according to Psalm 2, verse 7, that the Father says to the Son, Today I have begotten you. Jesus was not self-appointed. You say, what is that day talking about? That's talking about the day of his resurrection. That's talking about the day of his ascension. The scripture makes that very clear. Notice, though, it doesn't stop there. Yes, the Bible, the Old Testament says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2-7. But then we're going to have a second quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. And notice, just, verse 6, as he says also in another passage, you are a priest. Don't you listen to those Jews who were telling you Jesus could not be a priest. This text says you are a priest. And it's applied to Jesus. And he's not just a priest. He is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, doesn't that sound like a cool name, Melchizedek, you know? I've actually been thinking about this. I think that I don't think I know of any boys named Melchizedek. To me, it just sounds like an awesome name, okay? Melchizedek, or just sounds neat, okay? And I think it's it's almost, I don't want to call it a teaser. What does that mean? You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews is going to just drop that and let it sit and come back to it and spend a lot of time helping us to understand how awesome it is. But one thing we know for sure, if anyone says to you, you can say Jesus is your high priest, newsflash, he's no high priest, our response is what? He may not be a high priest as Aaron was back to the end of verse 4, but he's better. He's an eternal high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, so there, okay? That's what we have to say in response. This idea that I'm walking away from a high priest, no, I have a better high priest, and it's not like he signed up for the job, because we know that doesn't fly. He was appointed by God, an eternal high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. You say, yeah, but our high priest was like really weak and sinful, and we can relate to him. Yeah, second point. Our high priest, Jesus, sympathizes with sinners. Notice verse 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, that would just be his earthly ministry here after Jesus Christ becomes a man, incarnationally celebrated to Christmas. In the days of his flesh, what did he do? He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Now, a lot of discussion, what is that a reference to? Most people would take it as a reference to being in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus getting ready to suffer and die on a cross. Jesus getting ready to be, eventually, three days later, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and being our high priest. But notice, assuming that's accurate, and I believe it is, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And the Father was able to save him. So the obvious question that comes up, well then what is that a specific reference to? How did the Lord 
hear the prayer of Jesus. Because notice the end of verse 7. He was heard because of his piety. In what way was Jesus' prayer answered? And many would suggest, and I would agree with this, what did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Gethsemane, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup, this cup of suffering, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done but yours. And the Father did answer that prayer. Because Jesus, in praying that prayer, was completely submissive to the Father's will. And he didn't pray, Lord, save me from this. He prayed, Lord, if it be thy will, let the cup pass. Nevertheless, which is how we always should pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And you say, what happened? And the Father heard that prayer. Jesus accepted the Father's will, willingly going to the cross, knowing that there was no other way for us to be forgiven, knowing this was part of him being our high priest. He knows what it's like to suffer, to pray, to cry. He knows what it's like to pray in the midst of his suffering. And notice verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And many people spent a lot of ink on what does it mean he learned obedience. Let me first of all make the point, the key to this text is that he suffered. And the high priest back in the Jewish era suffered because he was just as sinful as everyone else. He could relate to our weaknesses. Remember, we already covered that. Don't think that Jesus doesn't understand you because Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. That's the key point of this text. Now, in bringing that up, the author of Hebrews says here in the text, verse 8, he learned obedience. So what does that mean? Well, when it says in verse 8 that he learned obedience, it doesn't mean that Jesus was disobedient. It's the, again, it's not a mom and dad thing. Hey, my kids have been so disobedient, but you know, I've been disciplining them, and I think they're starting to finally learn to be obedient. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. Now, I know some of you moms and dads are thinking, I wish I had a kid like that. I don't know. I think that would be a different topic. I think that could be challenging, right? Never, ever sins. That would have, certainly, it would be interesting. Jesus didn't go from disobedience to obedience. Jesus was never disobedient. But he practically learned what it meant to be obedient in the midst of his suffering. And as Jesus is crying out to the Father, praying in the midst of his suffering, and having his prayers answered, even as he submits to the Father's will, he is practically experiencing, learning through practical experience, something he never experienced before what it's like to suffer as he prepares to die on a cross and he knows it's coming and yet he embraces it 
in the midst of his suffering, practically learning what it's like to be a man who suffers. Jesus, remember, is he 100% God? Yes. Is he 100% man? Yes. Does it matter? Yes. Why? Because he can sympathize with sinners like us, and thus we make our application, guys. You never want to say, hey, those Old Testament priests, they were just as messed up as me. They can understand my suffering. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was sinless, and yet Jesus can sympathize with our sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He never sinned. He knows what it's like to suffer. We have a Jesus Christ a high priest who was a man. I read something really interesting this week. I never thought about this. The author was making the point that throughout history, people have attacked the deity of Jesus Christ more often than his humanity, by far. Now, some have attacked humanity, but by far, most people go after his deity. So many People throughout the centuries have worked hard to safeguard the deity of Jesus Christ, which is good. The author made the point that some people believe that is perhaps the explanation for the Roman Catholic Church exalting Mary. And I read that, and then I, I was reminded of what a nun once said to me. Why do we pray to Mary? We pray to Mary to get to Jesus. See, we got to go through Jesus to get to the Father, but how do we come to Jesus like he's God? He is God. He's God. He is God. Like, he can't relate to me. Mary would get me. So maybe we can go through Mary to get to Jesus, to get to the Father. And I've never thought about that. But the commentary was making the point. We need to make sure we do more than embrace an accurate, full, theological viewpoint of Jesus as God. Guys, we need to remember that Jesus was also man. 100% man. A real man. A human being. That's the incarnation. Yet without sin, he gets us. He sympathizes with us. That's our great high priest. Number one, God appointed. Number two, sympathizes with sinners. This last one, last two verses. Number three, verse 9 and 10, he sacrifices for our sin. Notice verse 9 and 10. And having been made perfect. You say, man alive, what's going on with that? It's kind of like verse 8. Having been made perfect doesn't mean Jesus was imperfect and then he became perfect. Don't think that. To be perfect means to accomplish the intended goal, to bring it to the desired end. That's the Greek word we have there for perfect. So having been made perfect, in what sense? In the sense of being our priest. You say, so you mean Jesus wasn't our priest before the incarnation? No! Jesus wasn't our sacrifice before the incarnation. If he was, he didn't need to come and die on a cross. Jesus comes in the incarnation, God in the flesh, dies on a cross for our sin, our sacrifice, ascends into heaven as our high priest. 
And what happens? And having been made perfect, and having accomplished the goal, is the idea. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. How awesome. Jesus is the source of eternal life. I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. God's holy. How am I going to get to God? You say, Greg, you need a priest. I know I need a priest. I made my first confession. I, I did my first communion. We won't talk about it. I did my confirmation. I know I need a priest. But you know what? That priest can't give me eternal life. Because the priest is struggling with the same stuff I'm struggling with. I need a high priest who can relate to me. I need a high priest who didn't just like volunteer, but God appointed him. I need a high priest who can be my priest free from sin. That's Jesus. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And now I got it. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I now have a high priest. You say, you still have a priest? Of course I have a high priest. You don't get to heaven without a priest. You say, what about all the Roman Catholic priests? Why would I need one? Why would I go to one? Why would I talk to one? To share, to share with him that he doesn't need to be a priest anymore because there's a high priest who will be his priest if he'd like to be forgiven of his sin. I'm good with that. No more Jewish high priests for these guys back in the time of Hebrews. We don't need any other priest than the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible phrase here, right at the end of verse 9. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And you can have that salvation if you want it. It's yours. It's a gift. But there's only one way to get it, right? It, there's only one way. Now, again, if you're driving a vehicle like mine, not a boat or whatever, there's only one way to get to Hilton Head Island. you got to go over this bridge. There's only one way for a sinner like me to get to God. I have to have a great high priest, priest, one who's appointed by God, who understands me, and is able to sacrifice for my sin, not for his, he never sinned. And if that's your faith, then you can get to heaven. And it's all through Jesus, our great high priest. You can have that confidence, not confidence in yourself, and I want to be careful, not even confidence in your faith, but in your confidence in the object of your faith. Our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have it. No Jewish person, priest, can get you to heaven. No Roman Catholic priest can get you to heaven. And don't tune me out. No Protestant pastor named Greg can get you to heaven. Call me up and say, Greg, get me to heaven. I can't even get myself to heaven. Come on. 
But I know of a priest, and he never sinned. He was appointed by God. He's an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he's ascended into heaven. And he's doing his priest work right now for every single person who believes in him. Guys, is that your faith? Are you confident you're going to be with God one day? Is that something that has removed the fear of death from your life? I hope it has. Last night, I made a, a couple of visits to the same location. Last night, I watched a man die. And it's someone I became friends with 20 years ago. And I've spent many, many, many minutes, hours, I don't know, with him over the course of many years. And so last night, it was obvious it's time for him to die. And here he is in the living room and his hospital bed and, you know, wasted away physically to nothing. You say, what, what have you been telling him through these especially more recent days? I've been repeating to him again and again, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil, for Jesus is with you. You have a high priest. And because you have this high priest, you don't need to be afraid to die. And this is somebody who knows the gospel. And in the last couple of days, he really couldn't communicate well. But if I could go back even a couple of weeks, you know what he was saying to me? Greg, pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. I want to go home. I don't want to be here anymore. I want to die. Would you pray that it happens? And I said, of course I will. And that's why I've been praying for him. Lord, you know best. I don't want to be presumptuous, but he knows Jesus as his high priest. He's good to go. He's ready. And last night he went. And here I am talking to a wife and a daughter, young son, and, and of course a lot of tears, and that's appropriate. No, no problem. But I'm continuing to remind them again and again and again. You shed as many tears as you'd like for the pain and the sorrow you feel, that's appropriate and that's real. No problem at all. But don't you dare shed a tear for him because he's with Jesus. Because he believed in Jesus as his high priest. He understood what this text is teaching us, what? That Jesus Christ is our God-appointed high priest, that Jesus Christ is our sympathetic high priest, that Jesus Christ is our sinless high priest, that Jesus Christ is our eternal high priest, and Jesus Christ is our source of eternal salvation. What a great high priest we have, amen? This is our faith. So I close with reading a text, not from Hebrews, but first from John 6. It says in verse 66, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? I want to address anyone, whether here in this room or live streaming. You may be a professing Christian, but you're thinking about walking away. Many people walked away and they saw Jesus live and in person. Many of his disciples stopped walking, following him. And they walked away. Jesus says to the twelve, how about you? 
And many of you know the great reply in the next text, verse 68 of Peter. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You say, Greg, have you ever thought about not following Jesus? Where would I go? Where would I go? Like if you said, you ever think about going to another country? I'd say, like where? Like where? I don't have a short list. I never even thought about it. Like where? If you say, are you going to stop following Jesus? That to me, this is just how I feel, is the most stupid thing you could ask me. Where else would I go? Where are you going to go? Do you have a better high priest? If you do, talk to me, because I'd love to hear about him. But I don't think you do. I don't think you can show me a better high priest than Jesus. Where are you going to go? Jesus is our high priest. So I end with reading Hebrews 4, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So, here we go. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You say, Greg, I'm struggling. Draw near to the throne of grace. You say, life is getting really hard. Come closer to Jesus. You say, I'm not sure I want to get closer to Jesus. I got no idea where else you're going to go. None. The answer is not going farther away. The answer is going to the only one who's qualified to be your high priest, appointed by God, who understands everything you struggle with, and who is right now today, having made a sacrifice for our sins, ascended into heaven, and interceding as our great high priest for everyone who has faith in him. Praise the Lord for our great high priest. And I pray by God's grace that this section of Hebrews has been an encouragement to all of us this day. And as we go and do our different things the rest of this day, the rest of this week, you'll find yourself thinking frequently, I am so glad I have a great high priest. I am so glad for Jesus. And if you're not rejoicing in that, and if I could be of help to you in any way, please let me know. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in prayer through Jesus, our great high priest. And we thank you for Jesus, our great high priest. We are grateful for Jesus, our great high priest. And we pray by your grace that if there's anyone who still doesn't yet know him, that even today you would open up blind eyes, that you would give life, and that you would do a work of grace that we know you can do, as they would come and join us in praising the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. It's in his name we pray. Amen.